Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Isn't it true that our lives don't actually feel like they're becoming just full of leisure and enjoyment? It's interesting. There's this biblical rhythm of work and rest, and we can all work and then at the end of the day rest. But there's this distortion of it in the technological world, which you might call toil and leisure. And when we have toil and leisure, you can't have leisure without someone else having toil. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. For many of us, there's a dissonance between the life we want and the life we're actually living. We want to be creative and successful. We want to be healthy. We want to be less addicted to our phones and devices. We want to discover good rhythms of work and rest. We want to enjoy our lives. But many of us struggle to get there. And there are reasons for this, many of them. But there's one that we might be able to do something about right now to shorten the gap between the life we want and the life we're living. Today, we're hearing from Andy Crouch. He's a partner for theology and culture at Praxis and an award-winning author. His most recent book, The TechWise Family, and one of his earlier books, Culture Making, will be some of the source material for our conversation today. Andy serves on the governing boards of Fuller Theological Seminary, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He has a degree from Cornell University and a master's degree in divinity from Boston University School of Theology. He's also a classically trained musician. Whew, he's busy, y'all. You would think that for someone who's this thoughtful about life and culture, asking him a simple question like, where are you from, should be easy for him. But evidently, that was a more difficult question than I thought. So, Andy, where are you from? <laughs> it is not simple. <laughs> well, when people ask me that, uh, when I'm first meeting them, I say I'm from, well, I, it's not even simple to know how to say the name of the town. So I live in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Or Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. There's either an R there or not. And it depends on whether you come from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, originally, or the Philly area, in which case it's definitely Swarthmore. That's me, Swarthmore. That's That's what I know it is. I didn't even know there was another option. (laughs) Aha! So if I know where you're from, I say Swarthmore. Got it. But if I'm somewhere else in the world, I usually say Swarthmore. But anyway, whether you call it Swarthmore or Swarthmore, we're just outside of Philadelphia. And we've lived here for 18 years. And this is also my wife's hometown. She moved here when she was four or five years old, went to school here. Her parents still live here. And so it very much feels like home in a lot of ways. And also, it doesn't feel at all like where I'm from. (laughs) So do you want to hear where I'm from? Yes, please. (laughs) Where I'm from is Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, And it's also not where I was 
born or even raised in my childhood. But when I was going on 13, my family moved there. I went to high school in the suburbs of Boston. I came back to Boston after college and lived there and met my wife there and had our two kids there um, for about 15 years before we moved here. And New England generally and Boston specifically definitely feels like actually where I'm from. Mm. Though even then, New England is such a particular place in our country and world that if you weren't born there, you know deep down that you aren't actually from there. (laughs) (laughs) And my mother is from the South, the American South, from Georgia, and my father's from Illinois. And so... I'm a secret Southerner. (laughs) My people are the Bennets, and they're from Scotland, the Scots-Irish who settled the Appalachians and into what we usually call the South. So I'm kind of from the Celtic lands by way of the South. Mother moved north. We ended up in Boston. That's where I came of age, and now I live in Philadelphia. All right. Wow. We've covered a lot of uh, territory just in that one question. So what what was it that prompted your family to move to Boston? Where did you guys move from? Yeah, yeah. We were living outside of Syracuse, New York, in central New York State. And we were in Syracuse because my father was teaching at Syracuse University. And the reason we moved is actually in many ways, the defining trauma of my own family's story. My dad was a university professor when I was growing up. His PhD was in nonverbal communication, all the ways we communicate without words. And uh, he taught speech and other things kind of related to human communication. But he did not get tenure at Syracuse. So you, you spend six years, as you know, kind of in this poorly paid trial period. And at the end of that, you either get a lifetime appointment or you're actually effectively um, out of a job. And my dad was out after six years, after doing a PhD, after relocating his family to this part of the world that he and the rest of my family really loved. And so you get one more chance, which is uh, one more professorship Mm. to try to get tenure one more time. So he moved to Babson College, uh, college right outside of Boston to try again and did not get tenure there either. So my high school years were spent during that second job for my dad as it kind of became clear after a couple of years that he would actually have to start over in life completely. Mm. So that move was defining in every way for our family. So how do you feel like that experience with your dad, you said it was a central moment, impacted you? It definitely raised the question for me. A very simple question. What is it to be a successful man? Of course, not that women can't have careers and succeed in careers. And my mother was a very well, highly trained pianist and had her own wonderful work. But as a boy, I saw my dad not finding a way to be himself and match his job and the career that he had sort of aspired to. I have not had a career the way my dad did. I've done a bunch of different things. But it took me until I was about the age that he had to totally change careers to feel that like I was no longer trying to answer that question. (laughs) Interesting. So you also mentioned your mom was a a renowned pianist. Well, renowned would be strong. She had an MFA in piano. So she studied classical piano, the Western classical tradition at at a high level. And she taught piano my whole life. So she was a wonderful teacher, went on to 
join a totally different part of the musical world of what's called English country dance music, which is the folk music of the British Isles uh, that was turned into dance music for the aristocracy. So if you've ever seen a Jane Austen movie, which for so I have no idea if you're a... <laughs> yep. I have watched Jane Austen. I say that with pride. So, you know, they go to these balls, right? So what they're dancing to at these balls is what's called English country dance. And my mother, in her second act of her life, became a semi-renowned English country dance musician. Wow. So what role did music have growing up in your life? Music was the central thing uh, when I was a child, certainly. So I had this wonderful teacher, I had this wonderful method, and for whatever reason, it came relatively easily to me. And so piano was my great love as a, as a child and teenager later on, and something I studied seriously enough to be uh, good at it, and also seriously enough to realize how good you had to be to do that thing as a living. And I was not, I just was interested in too many things to practice for six hours a day, which is what people who really take it on do. But in my childhood, that was the kind of the main act of my life. Gotcha. Yeah, I definitely want to return back there. But I do want to go to this experience you had of coming to a personal faith in in Christ and how that related to your time in Boston. So yeah, just kind of walk us through that. Yeah. Our family moves in 1980, if I have my chronology right, to Needham, Massachusetts, outside of uh, Boston. It's a relatively prosperous suburb. We're coming from a small rural town. It's a big cultural shift for everyone in the family. My sister's two years younger than me and then my parents. And my parents realized that I'm going to need some friends. And they dropped me off at the local Methodist church. But growing up as a child, I wouldn't have been able to say very clearly how faith shaped my parents, but it just hadn't shaped our family. And it just so happened that this United Methodist Church in Needham called Carter Memorial United Methodist Church, fairly large, kind of white New England looking place full of white New England looking people, um, was experiencing what I would call then and now an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And not everyone by any means in this church, but a significant minority were discovering this living, powerful person of the Trinity named the Holy Spirit, who had not previously gotten a lot of airtime. <laughs> and this included a number of kids in this youth group and a couple of the counselors. And I would also say it was simply a warm, welcoming environment for a kid who was brand new and really needed friends. And I can't describe it in all honesty without also saying it was a very, um, in a very appropriate way, or at least as appropriate as can be, a very physically affectionate group, like just warm, lots of hugs, lots of embraces. I had not experienced this before. And half of the group was girls. They were extremely sophisticated and cute. And I got more hugs from cute girls in one week than I'd gotten in my entire little adolescent life. And I'm like, I, whatever this is. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> but also deep, broader, emotional, like I need a place to fit. I need a place to be. And and I sense this is a place that will welcome. I really think it would have welcomed anyone. If mm. I was a pretty, I was not the most attractive, like uh, social kid. And they just found ways to welcome me. But at the deepest level, they had this week of activities that first week of September, first week of school. And at the end of it, I thought there is something to the faith that I don't know anything about and I want it. And there was this kind of closing evening and I kind of spoke up and, and said, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. I 
I don't know what that means. And I have to add one detail or one more piece of the picture, which is that there was this small, but not that small, like maybe 12 to 15 kids, this group of kids who not all from one church, but in this town, in my high school, who were seeking God. And every other Tuesday night, they would get together in some family's basement with no adults involved or present or hardly knowing what was going on and basically pray. And they invited me into this group. Basically, our liturgy was we would talk about our lives and our questions and maybe open up the Bible and try to find something to talk about there. No supervision, no plan, but we would do that for an hour. And then for an hour, we would pray. Mm. I look back on this with absolute just astonishment that a group of 13 to 15 year olds would come together, form this very real Christian community and love one another and then reach out to God and pray for an hour together straight. And we didn't know what we were doing, but I will say God did know what he was doing and in very powerful ways moved in those cumulative Tuesday evenings. So this was a formative experience for me. And I feel like one of the greatest blessings in my life is that my initiation and introduction into the Christian church, the body of Christ, was in its own way the most pure and healthy thing you can imagine. I mean, I've since met so many people whose, whose formative experiences were highly manipulative or or very rationalistic or very emotionalistic, yeah. and God manages to work through all these things. And I won't say, I mean, there was all kind of just adolescent stuff happening in that little group. And yet it just was very real community. Mm. So uh, my parents were very concerned. <laughs> uh, I was very zealous and I was very immature. And I decided they weren't Christians in any shape or form or fashion. And I remember one, one of my very painful memories is of a, I, it feels like it was an hours long argument in the car driving somewhere where I'm basically saying you should not even go to church because you're not really Christians and you definitely shouldn't give any money because God mm. doesn't want your money. Just horrible. Uh, oh, horrible. I mean, I wasn't getting that from this community of kids. I wasn't getting it from some of the adults I knew who were Christian. I just was in my own pharisaical world, I would say. So my parents were concerned and to be honest, uh, in the end, quite conventional and careful. And in New England, controlled is a high value in a congregation that in the end aspired to all those things as part of their identity as a mainline community. So there was a lot of suspicion at the same time, as I really would say what was happening in, in that community was really beautiful and, and real and formative for me. Wow. So this happens, you know, kind of formative throughout high school. So what happens in that transition from high school to college? Like mm, Pretty significant transition. I uh, end up going to Cornell University in, in New York State. And I go very much not having any idea how to find Christian fellowship, but, but definitely committed to finding it. And by the grace of God, I found this group called, very unoriginally, Cornell Christian Fellowship. <laughs> and... The significant thing about this group, uh, in addition to really wonderful friends that I made there, was actually the the pastoral, in a sense, leadership of it. And the staff who, who helped out this particular group were a Black Baptist liberation theologian named uh, Bob Hunter, who was also a 
professor of sociology at SUNY Binghamton and kind of spent half his time teaching sociology and writing uh, African-American liberation theology and then spent the other half of his time as a campus minister for students at Cornell and a Mennonite missionary named Mark Baker, who now teaches at Mennonite Biblical Seminary in, in Fresno, California, who had been a missionary in Honduras for many years. And without deserving it, I had fallen into the hands of two mentors who were absolutely transformational. Mark, above all, because he just kept handing me books, books by people I'd never heard of, books that were hard to read, you know. <laughs> and then Bob, first, I remember him teaching one night at the Cornell Christian Fellowship from Isaiah 58 which is, of course, the great song of justice in the songs of Second Isaiah, where God says, I hate your fasts, I hate your sacred assemblies, because you are not doing justice for the poor. And there's more to that chapter, but that's the kind of conflict at the heart of it. And you have to understand, you know, having been formed in the charismatic world where worship was everything, like mm. our our amazing worship, like that's what we do. That's what pleases God. That's where the Holy Spirit comes. And to, and to have the scriptures open up and God says, I could not care less about worship if you don't do justice. Mm. And I will say, honestly, Russell, I, before that night, I don't think I knew that chapter was in the Bible. And Bob opened it up in a very powerful way, and it's now in my Bible, and now I have to learn about that, right? And the other thing was that Bob Hunter was a pretty good gospel pianist, having learned it just the way you learn about gospel growing up in the church. And so he'd sit down at our fellowship meetings and play, and we'd sing. And so I said to Bob, can you teach, like, you like show me what you're doing, because I have no idea what you're doing on the piano, but I'd like to learn. So I started apprenticing with him as a musician. And he then introduced me to Mrs. Regina Williams, who was the wife of the pastor at St. James's AME Zion Church. Hmm. And it turned out they needed a piano player for the junior gospel choir. The senior gospel choir was uh, 55 and up. <laughs> junior choir was uh, lots of folks in their 40s and 50s, not too junior, but they need a piano player. And I said, well, I'd love to learn. And so that began my journey as a musician, but also as a person welcomed into this uh, very different Christian tradition. Wow. So, you know, a kind of typical upbringing with North, South and, you know, Scottish mixed with Methodist, <laughs> Baptist, Mennonite, Amy <laughs> Zion, you know, the typical. I was so confused by the end of college. <laughs> oh, man. So for those who that don't understand the, the dynamics of playing by ear in contrast to sheet music Kind of tie that into what I think is actually a even broader philosophical approach to music yes. and even culture itself. So, which oh, I would yes. imagine was a, another interesting thing to try to synthesize as you kind of play in this improvisational tradition coming from more structure. So, I'll just let you riff. Oh, on man. <laughs> <laughs> this is deep stuff. The Western world proper has been so formed by reading. And I, by the way, I want to say I love reading. I mean, I, I love writing. I love words. I love the written word. Uh, and I value the Western classical tradition tremendously, which has been mediated through written music since the dawn of anything we would call classical music. And reading is a head first activity. That is, your eyes take in the information you're very conscious of a kind of cognitive process of interpretation. Even if you're a fluent reader, 
you're always kind of inserting this work of interpretation before you get to how it should feel. I try to learn a new prelude and fugue by Bach out of the Wild Templar Clavier every few months. And so I sit down, I've got just this page in front of me. I intentionally don't listen to it. I don't know why I do that, actually. That's interesting. Uh, Why don't I listen to someone play it first? I don't know. But part of the reason is it's so complex, you can't really learn it by listening. You have to read your way through it. But initially, I'm just playing with very little expression. I'm just trying to get the notes, right? Now, go to the world of Black Gospel. There is no written uh, music or text. If it's taught to singers, it's taught by being lined out. So this, the accomplished singer, the one who already knows, sing a line, and then you sing it back. And I don't want to oversimplify this because there's a lot going on at the head and intellectual level in the performance of Black Gospel. But your heart and I would say your body is engaged from the start. Mm-hmm. Now, in Western classical music gets there because the great performers of Western classical music bring incredible heart and physical like expression to it. But that comes after the intellectual apprehension of what you're meant to do. Whereas in gospel, you feel it before you even do it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. And I don't want to say one is better than the other. These are both incredibly rich cultural traditions. I mean, I came to it from the European American side. And I have to say that Even in high school, before I really started to really apprentice myself and learn, I just felt I need this. I live too much in my head. My culture lives too much in its head. I need to have a way to encounter the world that starts with my body and with what it feels like to be a human being, Mm. rather than starting with my brain and what I think about what it is to be a human being. Mm. So at least for me, it was a great gift to be invited into that world and to learn it and to get to the point where I could fool some of the people some of the time. I mean, <laughs> and I can say he's on his humble brag right now. This, this brother can play. I've heard him. <laughs> and you could close your eyes and not know that that was a white man playing that music. So, which is one of the highest compliments you can give somebody playing gospel. So that's what's up. Now, the other interesting thing is, you know, I read about you that your major was the classics. And yeah. at Cornell. Now, please explain why you chose <laughs> that, and for those, and, and why that is not a dead end career move. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, if you try to make it a career, it is a dead end. The classical languages, so Greek and Latin, is what I studied, mostly Greek. I did, I did a lot of Greek. The reason I went into it was very simple. A Bible study leader had found this little group of kids who had no supervision and started doing Bible studies with us. We really did need some adult help. And he had gone to a seminary that really emphasized the biblical languages. And so he would come to this Thursday morning Bible study when I was a junior and senior in high school with his Greek New Testament. And he would open up the Greek New Testament of whatever we were studying and say things like, well, in the original Greek, this says, you know, And I thought, oh, this is like the magic key to being a Christian. Like if I could read the New Testament in the original language, I would like know what it really says. Turns out to be totally false because the translations we have in English are really quite good. (laughs) There's not, there's not a whole lot hidden there. There's interesting nuances for sure. And there's a reason people study the biblical languages, but I quickly realized that that wasn't a good enough reason to be a classics major for sure. And, and then, 
Two other things happened. I found out how bad the Greek of the Bible is. It's not written by literature scholars. It's written by ordinary people. Mark can barely speak Greek, honestly. He writes like it's his third language, which it probably was. And then I read Homer and Euripides and Plato. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. Like this is, it's just a whole, a culture with all kinds of flaws, uh, obviously. And yet the literature and the language of that time and place, I just fell in love with it for its own sake, not to be able to read the Bible. Though I, you know, it's nice to be able to check things in the New Testament read, but it was actually being exposed to this totally different cultural world that is so different from ours and yet has influenced ours in good and bad ways. And that made it worth it, even though People ask, well, what have you done with that? Nothing is what I've done with it. And everything. (laughs) Exactly. I was about to say, it's fascinating to see how these building blocks, I see a kind of connection gets you to this interest in culture and innovation. But since I guess you're a glutton for punishment, you decided not to just stay with classics as an undergrad, but (laughs) end up going for an MDiv at Boston U. Yeah, I did. I did. I went straight from undergrad to seminary, which I actually would not largely recommend for Mm -hmm. most people. I don't think it's the best sequence, but that's what I did for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I felt called to ministry. I felt called to give my life to unfolding the manifold wisdom of God in our time and place with people. And I knew just enough about my own, what I didn't know, to want to get a little more hmm. training and preparation. I will also say I needed an excuse to get to Boston specifically because the girl I was in love with at that time was on her way to Boston. So there might have been some instrumentality to the <laughs> seminary. <laughs> and she broke up with me one week after I arrived in Boston. Oh. So that, yeah, that's a whole other story. <laughs> you don't want to hear that story. Well, well hey, getting a summa cum laude in MDiv at Boston U is a nice little revenge move for getting yeah. broken up with. You know, I'll show you. I would call it redemptive. God acted very redemptively. There uh, it is. There it is. All right. So, you, you know, you have all of these different experiences and this call to ministry. What do you decide to do with that? And mm. how do these things start to kind of build out into yeah. the Andy that we know today? Well... A very, very fortunate thing happened. I will say that breakup, which was appropriate in the sense that I don't think we were meant for one another, and I was so lonely. I was so lonely. When we come back, Andy will share how the relationships he made in this next season of his life led him to some profound conclusions that are so helpful for us today. Specifically, Andy will help us discover what it means to be more fully human as culture makers instead of only culture consumers. He will also help us discover freedom from something that keeps most of us restless, bored, distracted, anxious, and lonely. Find out what that is next on Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate programs. 
Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Hey friends, my name is Jade Gustafson and I'm one of the producers for Where You're From. Before we return to our conversation with Andy Crouch, I wanted to share a quick teaser of our next episode with our very own Rasul Barry. This is Where You're From. I wouldn't say I had a very firm handle on what culture was, but I did know that it had to do with the way we think, our assumptions, the stories that we tell ourselves and how we form meaning. I would say that that was lurking in the back. The thus so's, the assumptions that we make about what is true and what isn't. And so all of those things were things that I started to realize as I saw the assumptions that it formed American society, assumptions about the supposed inferiority of Africans that which justified slavery. When I thought about, you know, the supposed inferiority of natives that justified taking land, like all of these stories that I was like, oh, these aren't just things that affected the past, but they're still impact the present and even impact how I see myself. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we will jump back into our conversation with Andy Crouch. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes and quotes are available in the podcast description or on our website at whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. The notes contain links to Andy's books, more info about him, and links to connect with Where You're From on social. In part one of our conversation with Andy Crouch, he shared about the many layers to his life and experiences. A PhD dad who was an expert in communication, a mom who was skilled at both the piano and English country dance. His own experiences in learning piano and gospel music paired with his pursuit to make sense of his world, which led to an eventual transition to Boston University, where Andy experienced some of the most intense loneliness of his life. Let's pick up the story there. Here's Andy Crouch on where you're from. I was so lonely. I was so lonely. And so I really needed friends and community. So I reached out to the folks who were connected with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the fellowship that I'd been part of in college in the Boston area, and through that found a community of people living in a house in Harvard Square, Cambridge, who had an extra bed, needed a, one more roommate. And I moved in a year after moving back to Boston with this community of folks who had been connected with the Christian Fellowship at Harvard. And so first just found some friends who were really following Jesus in very, very beautiful ways. And a lot of these folks are friends to this day, 30 years later. And then realized that kind of in the amazing way that God had been doing something in Needham High School, God was actually doing something kind of surprising at Harvard College, at the undergraduate part of Harvard University. So while I was still at BU, Boston University School of Theology, I started volunteering and then kind of became halftime staff with InterVarsity at Harvard. And it was amazing. And I, at the end of my seminary studies, thought, why would I want to do anything else for the foreseeable future than accompany students in their lives the way that Mark and Bob, my staff workers, had done. So I joined University Christian Fellowship staff full-time and ended up being there for 10 years. Got you. And from that point on, you get into this phase of creating things, you know, Hmm. regeneration, books, right? Was that a Hmm. deliberate 
pivot for you to say, okay, I think in this next phase that this is something that I want to go on this trajectory or did it just kind of happen more organically than that? That's such an interesting question. Yes, it was deliberate or it was considered maybe is the Mm -hmm. best word. And what I was considering specifically at the time (laughs) is undergraduate campus ministry is an amazing thing to do. You're with people at the wet cement stage of their lives and things that are set during those years will stay set for the rest of their lives. And you get to be there at these pivotal, difficult, beautiful, formative moments and ideally see God work in those times and places. But I was getting restless and I was getting intellectually restless and I started writing just to get my restlessness out. My writing got picked up by a couple different magazines. One of them was this little journal that a bunch of 20-somethings had started called Regeneration Quarterly. I started writing for Regeneration because it was a place where I could work out what it meant to be Gen X. And then the founders of the magazine uh, ran out of money and energy and time, and it was about to close. And a couple others of us who had been involved thought, this shouldn't close. Like We need somewhere to think out loud together. So we took it over. And two years later, we realized we need someone to run this full time. And it was just the right moment for me to realize, I think the season of my life where I'm doing this kind of direct pastoral ministry is ending. And as you said, a season of trying to create, of bringing things into the world is beginning. And so that launched kind of the next season of my life, which continues to the present in many ways. Journalism, you might say, of trying to Like pay attention to what's going on right around us, but put it in context. And ever since I've been trying to do that. Wow. That's a great way to put it. There's too much depth in all the things that you've written to go into depth and catch it all. But I would like to start with culture making and end with tech wise, because I think they're related. Mm. But what was the big idea that you were wanting to articulate with this book, Culture Making, you know, which ends up becoming for so many people a very transformative thing to read and experience and and to think about. What was it that lit that for you? And what were you trying to articulate through it? Well, it gets very much to the heart of what I was increasingly getting dissatisfied with in my 10 years of campus ministry. It came straight out of something that dawned on me. I and my partners in ministry had, in my view, not been doing well. So we were really good at helping students activate and and in some cases begin their personal life of faith. We were pretty good at drawing them into a community of faith that was following Jesus together. These are incredibly important things. And we were pretty good at calling them to serve the poor, the vulnerable, the outcast, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. We had a real vision for that and connections in the city of Boston and beyond that helped our students make that connection. The one thing we were not good at was giving our students a Christian framework for the very thing they were actually doing with their days, which was being students at Harvard University. We were trying to extract them from these four years of undergraduate and say, wait, wait, there's something more important. There's your own life with Jesus. There's your life with the church, you might say, or the Christian community. And there's your life of service to the poor. But we did not have a way of talking about the actual thing they were doing. And the thing is, you can have a really powerful life of faith, be a really meaningful member of a church, and serve the vulnerable without going to Harvard University, right? So do you see how we were missing, and this is a common issue with campus ministry, we were missing a way to give them a discipleship vision. I mean, if you just slice up the endowment, like every one of these students, whatever background they came from, was suddenly one of the most privileged people in the world. 
And we had basically no theological resources for that Mm -hmm. because we did not know how to talk theologically about culture. The reason you go to a place like Harvard University or any college or get any education at all is to prepare yourself to join a part of culture, to acquire facility essentially in culture making, the cultivation and the creation of this human activity we call culture. And we were not alone in having this problem because it dawned on me that a lot of Christians had very little vision for this thing that's not just something that Christians do, but that all humans do, that's culture. And we didn't know how to talk about it. And when we did talk about it at that time, we talked a lot about culture wars Hmm. and cultural conflict. And we talked about being countercultural, but we didn't talk about actually creating culture. (laughs) So culture making was written to give me, first of all, and then whoever wanted to read it, language for this most central part of what it is to be human and I think Christian. Yeah. And I know for me personally, just even categories of saying, okay, there's a tendency to either assimilate to (laughs) the culture or to completely reject it, which the culture war framework. And the thing I love with your nuance, there are some things to reject and there are some things that are good to assimilate. But as a wholesale strategy, neither of those reflect the actual mandate from the beginning of go right. be fruitful and multiply, you know, fulfill the earth, subdue it, make something of the world. Yes. And it takes far greater skills to do that and live in the world and, and do that well. That's right. One of the specific things when you think about culture and the way that you defined it very simply is things that we make. And sometimes those are ideas or yeah. something intangible like music or something very as physical as the microphones that we're speaking into right now. Yeah. And probably no thing has had as much influence in terms of shaping culture than technology today, which is something that you've most recently written. But talk to us about why you wrote My TechWise Family and the importance of that specifically and as connected to this conversation about culture. Yeah, that wow, that's a great connection because, of course, we all sense something's going on with this thing that we have come to call technology, which is a word we kind of... I think invented in a way, to name something new. There was a new development in culture that I would date to roughly 120 years ago that we needed a new word for. And I really appreciate you mentioning, you know, this kind of core idea. Culture is what we make of the world, and it's both the physical things that we make and the meaning we make. And they always go together. There's nothing really that human beings fashion physically out of the world that doesn't have a layer of meaning to it. And there's actually no meaning that human beings find in the world that they don't attach an artifact to. They actually make a thing. Like, there's no purely immaterial meaning. It's always made material. And there's no meaningless material. It's always meaningful material. So, I mean, we're using a huge panoply of technology right now, starting with the electric power that runs into all of our buildings in the so-called developed world, to all the way down to the microprocessors, the the headphones, the microphones. I mean, if we tried to list it, we'd be amazed at the stack. We sometimes talk about a stack of technology. And I have increasingly come to believe that while the material stack of technology is basically good, I would say very good. It's part of the human act of making the good world very good. But the meaning we have attached to it and the things we are asking it to do for us and the kinds of people we want it to help us become are, I actually think, very misdirected. And yet the misdirection is extremely powerful in our world, above all because it's tied to 
the god of our age, which is Mammon, the financial wealth that has been created, the economic GDP hockey stick from the 19th century to the present, where this massive explosion of global wealth, at least measured in financial terms, is driven by a certain vision of what it is to be human that is embedded in the devices we're making that I actually think we are finding out in our very core gut experience of what it is to be a person doesn't work. So that's the deep project. But but my first attempt at that ended up being this book, The TechWise Family, which actually I'm so glad that I started with with something actually really simple. But it is the defining feature of culture right now. Wow. Okay. And so, you know, that was an incredible teaser of this meaning and even <laughs> definition that is underneath yes. these devices. Please share with us what that meaning is and what it's trying to define us as. Uh, you want the like high octane version? Yeah, please. All right. So the dream is to be like God. The dream is to be what we think God is like, which is not actually what God is like at all. The dream is to be free of limits, to have abundance without dependence, to have prosperity without relationship. It's to be able to, in an impersonal, endlessly powerful way, extract from the world everything I want without effort. In TechWise Family, I call it easy everywhere. And we think, oh, this is what it's like for God. It's also a dream of disembodiment. It's a dream of no longer being limited by our bodies, their mortality, their frailty, their location in space, their connection to other people, the way they implicate us in, in relationship that we often find constraining with other people. It's the dream to be free of all that. And see, for us to become like gods, we're going to need a lot of work to get done because we don't want to do any work. God doesn't do any work, does he? Like God gets to just kind of command and things work. So we're going to need things to work. So the dream is... We're going to make things ever more sophisticated and complicated things. We'll call them call them robots, and they'll just do the work for us. And we'll be able to live a life of total leisure while the robots do everything. And we'll feel so great about ourselves. And the thing is, both sides of this dream are mistaken. There is no such thing as a God like we think. The God who made this world and became human does not aspire to disembodiment. <laughs> this God aspires to embodiment. But it's just, we have the totally wrong vision of what we're meant to be, and we also have the totally wrong vision of what technology will ever do for us. Yeah, that is the high-octane version, the, the deep dive. <laughs> but are there ways also in which the technology, and this is, I think, what you, some of what you get to in TechWise Family, actually makes slaves of us? Ha, ha, ha. Yes. Yes. Strange, isn't it true that our lives don't actually feel like they're becoming just full of leisure and enjoyment? It's interesting, you know, there's this biblical rhythm of work and rest, and we can all work at the end and then at the end of the day rest. But there's this distortion of it in the technological world, which you might call toil and leisure. And when we have toil and leisure, you can't have leisure without someone else having toil. Everyone can rest. The Sabbath rest is specifically says your manservant, your maidservant, even your animals, everybody gets a day of rest in the biblical vision. But for me to recline in my home and have some package appear whenever I want it, someone is working really hard and, and the nature of their work does not allow 
for that kind of grateful rest. The system just has to squeeze that out. Mm -hmm. And so you can have rest and work together for everyone, but leisure requires toil from someone. And what would be the difference between toil and work? I think work is fruitful transformation of the world in some way or fruitful care for the world. And it includes a lot of things. It includes doing dishes. It includes taking out the trash. You know, it's not all, it's not all writing poetry. Um, In fact, none of it almost. (laughs) It's hard. It's tiring. It's often physical. In fact, I think at at its best, it's physical, but it's fruitful. Whereas toil is work that ultimately feels that you just in your heart of hearts know this is kind of fruitless. This is vain. It's not leading to something. And it's also detached from the dignity of the person who does it. Mm -hmm. The person who works can legitimately take pride in what they do. And there's a whole range of things we human beings do that we can take pride in. But the person who toils, often the systems around them kind of don't treat them. It's, It's making bricks without straw. It's being the Hebrews rather than the Egyptians. And the Egyptians and the Hebrews are a pretty good example of, of leisure and toil. You mm-hmm. know? Gotcha. So leisure and rest, then, how would you define that difference? Yeah. So rest is the glad satisfaction of work that I've done. Ah. So when I make a meal, I'm in the kitchen and I make a meal with my family, let's say, on a good night. And we all sit down and we all enjoy it. This is not the one where mama has to stay in the kitchen the whole time. This is where we all get to sit down. And this is God on the seventh day. He beheld. It's very good. It's what I feel at the, when I finish the work of writing a book. I rest. I just I look at the completed manuscript. I look at the published book. I'm like, ah, ah, it's done. It's good. Leisure is just inactivity that has nothing to do with the work I did. Uh, I'm not celebrating the work I'm doing. I'm just, I'm free of it for a while. And someone else has to work for me to have leisure. So if I order out for dinner and someone pulls up from Uber Eats and drops off my dinner, I mean, that's leisure. I'm like, oh, you know, we, we can all sit down. We didn't do any work and we get to just enjoy it. We didn't have any activity involved. We just pressed a button and asked for what we wanted. But in some kitchen somewhere, someone's working really hard. Mm-hmm. So for me to have that leisure experience of just being able to order out, someone else has to at least work. And the danger is they're actually being made to toil. Okay. Is the point then I shouldn't use Uber Eats? Because I love Uber Eats, man. <laughs> <laughs> we have to ask, is it a just system? Okay. Because if it's a just system, then yes, the people doing that work, though I may not see them directly, if they're being treated as fully human if sure. they're if they have sabbath rest built into their employment and they're doing good work and making good food then that's good work okay. and they can go home at the end of the day and say that was good and a lot of us are a little reluctant to pull back the curtain mm. and find out yeah. what's happening in that kitchen i never see Got it. and in some cases it's beautiful truly beautiful mm. and it's people doing their best and doing making food i could never make and and we all got to enjoy it and in other cases, you pull back the curtain and and God says, this is not pleasing to me because it's not treating people as people. We're seeing it in a lot of sectors of our economy. It's the rise of what we sometimes call the gig economy. And it, it's been more and more documented that, unfortunately, some of the most powerful and successful, technologically successful companies actually are the ones that depend the most on a big workforce who have fewer 
protections than they've ever had. So it used to be that companies had employees and of course companies could lay people off and had to sometimes. But this new era we're in is in an era of what's sometimes called contingent work, which doesn't have any of the protections for the worker because it's not construed as employment. And there's an amazing article by a former, an award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning, I believe, uh, writer for Sports Illustrated who was laid off from Sports Illustrated and found himself uh, driving for Amazon. Mm -hmm. And he lays out kind of what it's actually like to have that job, how pressured it is, how unpredictable it is, how little dignity you have. He is one who is carrying a Gatorade bottle in the back because his schedule doesn't allow him any time and there's no place to go, as it were, on that route. And it's never the same route. And there's all these things that squeeze efficiency out of people, right? <laughs> and automate people and monitor people, which started way back in factories in some ways. But the information technology becomes a layer that allows a level of surveillance of workers that has never been possible before. Part of the dignity of the UPS driver who used to come by, and I haven't seen him in many years now, by the way, because even UPS has changed the way they do it, is he had a kind of dignity of autonomy in his route. He had something he had to do every day. But while he was out there, he had the sort of dignity of carrying it out. But when you're monitored every moment by technology, when you're told every moment by technology what you have to do, how many steps you have to take, how fast you have to get to that next site, it's a real limiting of, I think, what makes work good work. That doesn't mean that it's beneath anyone to do a, a paid job. I mean, it's good to provide for your family and put food on the table. And these are the jobs that are available. But the system we've built uh, doesn't treat its most vulnerable members like full, dignified human beings, in my view. Yeah. And just for those that might want to read a little bit more of that curtain, the article that you were referring to was by Austin Murphy uh, in The Atlantic. I used to write for Sports Illustrated. Now I deliver packages for Amazon. So maybe that's a good place to start. And and I think that is also connected to the fact that, that when you chase the dream of being like God, it ends up being very unsatisfying. <laughs> and all of our ancestors at some stage spent their days cultivating or hunting. That is, they were out in the world. They worked hard for sure. And at the end of the day, they were able to light a fire and sit out under the stars, and you couldn't work at night, you couldn't hunt or gather at night. And so they had this rhythm of work and rest. And now we live with, in some ways, ease that they never could have imagined. And yet our lives feel way less satisfying. I, I just can guarantee you, those hunter-gatherers were baseline happier <laughs> than your average beneficiary of the technological world, who's restless, bored, distracted, anxious, lonely, all these things come from pursuing this godlike life that we really weren't made for. And and after reading TechWise Family, you know, I realize anybody who's especially during the pandemic where you go, oh, man, the first couple of weeks of like, <laughs> I don't have to go to work. Like I can just kind of binge on Netflix knows that feeling of almost like you over <laughs> eaten after Halloween on candy. And it's just like, ugh. <laughs> 
I don't even feel good about <laughs> exactly. myself anymore. You know what I mean? I finished the exactly. whole season in two days, and I'm I'm not better for it. <laughs> so I, I think that that is that feels true. But yet, the thing that is interesting about the book is you don't just go with anecdotal evidence, but you actually partner with Barner Group and you create some really vivid stat lines to kind of reflect these truths. Why did you decide to make that choice? And what's some of the more eye-opening statistical evidence that kind of bears out this these points that you've been making? I think one really interesting thing, and I think this shows up most clearly actually in the research we did for the second book, which is mostly my daughter's book. It's called My TechWise Life, kind of written by a kid. But we did a bunch more research for that. And when you ask You know, kids are the ones who are growing up totally immersed in this. And there's this really beautiful and distressing uh, double page spread in the book. It has a bunch of questions about what do you most enjoy doing? And so when you ask kids kind of in an open-ended way, what do you most enjoy doing? They're like, oh, getting together with my friends, um, playing outside, reading a book. It's wonderful things. And then we ask them to take the same kind of list of activities and say, what do you actually spend your time doing? And it's things like binging on Netflix and being on social. And in fact, people say, when we ask them, when you are getting together with friends, are you more likely to go out and play a game outside together or play a video game? And when you ask them what they would like to do, they say, I'd rather go outside. But when Mm. you ask them, what do you actually do with your friends? It's play a video game. Mm. So this gap that's opened up that I think is really distinctive. I mean, of course, goes back to Romans 7, you know, the thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. I mean, there's always been this gap. But I don't remember my adolescence being this huge, like, dissonance between the life that I want and the life I'm actually living in terms of my daily choices. Because all these leisure options, all these technologically mediated options, they're so available. They're so easy. They're designed to be easy. They're designed to be right with us. And they just kind of colonize our lives. Um, even though we know and we can tell a survey researcher, a 13-year-old can say, oh, no, I'd much rather be outside. But we never actually get outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so in the book, you not only kind of paint the picture of the challenge, you give some very uh, tangible solutions, some that even cause you to evoke this imagery of Lancaster County, of the Amish, who are not that far from you, uh, who have completely (laughs) uh, avoided technology at all, which, you know, which is funny because you also describe yourself as a tech geek. So you're not anti-tech. But what are some of the things that you have uh, recommended that could be helpful for people so that the technology isn't making them their slave, but that they're actually using the tool to enhance their life. Yeah. It it really connects in a way back to the kind of essential idea of culture making. We're made to create. And so the core idea, and we kind of impress this on our own children as we were raising them, is we want to be a family who creates more than we consume. So we want the kind of center of gravity of our life to be creative action rather than consuming what other people have made or consuming through devices. So two things that we did that I recommend in the TechWise family that as other people have adopted these things, I hear such beautiful stories about the change that it makes are basically to change a space and to change time. So changing space is about actually rearranging the space where you live 
and rearranging it to put creativity in the center of your home and consuming and media and tech at the edges of your home. So when our kids were small for many, many years, um, you walk into our house and well, the first thing you'd see is we have a grand piano. <laughs> we spent much of our kids' college savings on it when they were little. <laughs> we figured any kid can go to college. Not many kids can grow up with a grand piano. So there's this instrument, right, that sits there. It doesn't play by itself. Uh, you have to learn to play it. But it's kind of sitting there inviting them to play. And happily, both of our kids, they, neither of them went on to play even the way I do. But they, they all studied and enjoyed it. But then, uh, a little more accessibly, there was this art table, craft table, we called it, that had all these craft supplies, uh, always there. Kids would walk into the house, and the first thing you see is a place to make something. And we didn't even have a TV for the first 10 years of their lives, but, but we're not against TV. And so now we have a nice TV, but it's in the basement. It's not at the center. It's at the edge. And so rearrange your home to actually have at the center the things that involve you heart, soul, mind, strength as a whole person with other people rather than kind of put you on the couch basically as a consumer. And then the other thing is to reshape time, which is really about a pattern of on and off. <laughs> um, our devices, our whole technological world is designed to be on all the time. Um, but the biblical pattern is, is work and rest. So we started having this pattern in our family of one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, where we basically, anything that has an off switch gets turned off. So one hour a day for us is dinner time these days. And this extends to the electric lights in our house. We turn off the electric lights. We light candles. We have dinner. I will tell you, it changes dinner with small or big kids, uh, let alone it also is very... Um, as you age, uh, your spouse by candlelight has this kind of glow of youth that's quite uh, <laughs> delightful that isn't quite the same, at least. I don't know about you. You're a very good-looking guy, Russell, but I myself look better under candlelight than under the glare <laughs> of the electric lights. So you know, you're like, oh, darling, you know. So very romantic and great conversations happen. So one hour a day, just turn off everything. Park the phones. Park all the devices. Turn off the glowing rectangles. One day a week for us at Sunday. And then we try to make at least one week a year. Uh, we are able to take a vacation week or two usually. And during at least one of those weeks, we just turn it all off and try to figure out how people have fun without these things. And it nice. turns out you can. <laughs> <laughs> so what has been some of the feedback that you've gotten, you know, uh, you know, just that have been encouraging and, and some that's even been insightful about some of the feedback. So we are not Amish. Uh, in the book, I say, I'm not even sure we're almost Amish. We are almost, almost Amish. And yet, when I finished TechWise Family, I did say, as artists should say, I think this is very good and I'm willing for it to go out in the world. I also thought no one is going to do this. This book, I mean, for, I mean, this is not the number one way to measure anything, but uh, it's sold more copies than all of my other books put together. Wow. We know something's not right, right? Mm. People just, everyone knows. And people are so eager for some practical way to reshape our world, to not live like gods, not live like servants or slaves, live like people. And especially together, especially in these precious years when we have children, for those of us who are raising children. And then to hear how people have reshaped their homes, literally moved furniture around, redesigned their homes, uh, has been amazing. Uh, and and what generally they re what the parents report <laughs> is the first couple weeks that they try to introduce any of these changes are just brutal, like incredibly 
everyone's angry and the kids are really angry. And But then you get past that and beautiful things start to happen. Now, for the reports to come in from the 12-year-olds, it's going to take a little longer <laughs> because it's hard to be a kid and it's really hard to be a kid whose family is different. And you don't get the reward from that until 10 years later. Mm. And so we'll see how the we'll see what the reports are like in 10 years. There it is. There it is. And, <laughs> I, and one good thing is you'll see that they'll be able to string together full sentences, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they, they won't be depending on text speak. I say that. We'll see. Cheek, we'll see. Now, I, I do have to do this part because I would not be honest myself if I didn't acknowledge what I shared with you prior to us getting on, which is that. I read TechWise Family. It's a hard book for me to pick up because I feel so convicted about my own choices. Yes, my cell phone is plugged in right next to my bed. Yes, I tend to watch these things. Do you have a word, Preacher? for the the wayward soul who still is embodied by their technology and is trying to do the right thing, but just finds themselves struggling with making space or time and reshaping it in a way that, you know, is is ultimately redemptive. You got you, you got something. Give me encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> well, so first of all, pray for me a sinner. So I first want you to know I'm a fellow sinner and struggler. I have all kinds of challenges in my own relationship with tech, with media. Um, I do plug my phone in away from my bed most nights, but that doesn't mean I don't utterly resonate with what you're saying. We're all living. I mean, these things, these are captivating things and they are, they're tied into very deep spiritual powers that are shaping our, all of our lives. You should not feel shame or guilt at all for being caught up in, it's like, I was talking to someone the other day, it's like someone, you know, in a rowboat and a tsunami comes in and they're like, oh, I wish I had an eight horsepower motor instead of a four horsepower motor. I mean, hmm. you're in the midst of a tsunami of technology. So I would truly want to say, uh, I feel it too. I would also want to say you are forgiven. You are mm. loved no matter where your phone is. You're no matter how much time you spent on Twitter yesterday, no matter what you did on Twitter, you're forgiven. You're loved and rise. Imagine what it would be to stand up a little more free of some of the things that in your heart of hearts, you know, are, are compulsive about mm. this. Cause we all, we all know it when we're honest and believe there's freedom one step at a time from the things that are most compulsive. Because in fact, there are beautiful, good, free ways to use all of these devices. I mean, I feel like we've had quite a rich, I mean, a real conversation. And we did it totally with technology, but but not in a compulsive mm. way. We're not going to leave this like craving something, right? Mm. We're going to leave feeling, at least I'm going to feel, I, I was really listened to. I was really loved in a way. And I hope you feel that way too. So there's ways to be free with all this stuff and it's available to you. And, and there may be some paths of repentance to get there, but it's there. Uh, so believe that and yes. rise and go and send no more. <laughs> <laughs> I accept it. And I also say there's room at the altar for one more. So if oh, you're yes. listening and uh, that's you too, <laughs> um, we invite you to, to come and experience the, the grace of being tech wise and free from the bondage uh, that so easily entangles yeah, us. That's it. You're listening to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And that brings us to the end of our conversation with Andy Crouch. 
If you want more info on Andy or his books, check out the show notes, which are available in the podcast description. The show notes not only contain the talking points for today's episode, but also links to the books mentioned on today's show and links to connect with where you're from on social. Just look at the podcast description or go to where you're from.org. That's where YA from.org. Today's episode was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gustafson. Also want to give a special shout out to Rochelle and Jeremy for their help in creating and promoting where you're from. This is Rasul Berry reminding you, it's not just about where you're at, it's also about where you're from. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.